Thank you for that girl. The podcast project of the finalist. By Leopold Lambert. Today, low space and bodies with Andreas Filipopoulos Mialopoulos. Today, my guest is uh, Andreas Filipopoulos Mialopoulos. Uh, he's the director of the Westminster Law and Theory Center in London. And um, we're going to talk about uh, uh, legal theory, law, and uh, maybe uh, space and architecture. Um, hello, Andreas. Hello. Uh, thank you for being uh, w with me to talk about uh, those issues that you know very well. Um, maybe a, a good way to start would be to ask you uh, what what is your research right now addressing, and uh, and we'll start the conversation after that. Okay. Well, I'm currently trying to. Uh, I'm between two books, two monographs that I'm preparing, and and I'm trying to bridge these two through an article that I'm writing. And the whole thing is really between things. I'm I'm trying to move from a concept of spatial justice to a concept of material justice. So I'm trying to understand the difference between, first of all, what I understand by justice, because I, obviously coming from law, you have a very clear understanding of what justice is, or, or not, as it, as it goes. But I try to have a clear understanding, and now I'm trying to dirty it up to make it a little bit more complex. And um, so I've been working on spatial justice for a while, and my recent take is more in line with... Um, I'm not moving away from space, but I'm, I'm populating space even, even in a an even thicker way with more bodies and more uh, inorganic matter mm -hmm. and anonymous material and all that stuff so I'm trying to see what it, what I mean by material justice so this is where this is where you find me. I see well I, I, I like a lot of the words you already use so I'm sure we'll have a very interesting conversation uh, actually a question pop up Uh, right away and uh, because um, a lot of our listeners might not be familiar with this concept but can you maybe briefly explain what spatial justice is about how briefly <laughs> <laughs> all right so spatial justice has a very strange history because it has been used um, although not directly the term but at least what what the the so sort of the inheritance on the concept was uh, by David Harvey uh, back in the 70s. And it was understood as the concept of, you know, how, how rights can be enforced within a particular space, a particular uh, city. So it had to do with Lefebvre, uh, the right of the city. Um, but, uh, and, and, and of course, they, both Harvey and Lefebvre are, are using the Marxist... Um, terminology and indeed Marxist concepts in order to work through the idea of spatial justice. Subsequently, several other people, not so many, but some people have worked on the concept of spatial justice. Um, notably, Ed um, Soja has uh, done a few books on, you know, there are several, several articles, but recently a book on, on spatial justice. And, uh, and there are some other people, there's a journal that is actually called Spatial Justice, and mm -hmm. there's a, a special because it's kind of a, um, it's a bilingual book. So it is, there's, a, there's a lot of interesting stuff going on with Spatial Justice. Now, I come from a slightly different perspective because I found all these concepts rather impoverished, and I found them very frustrating because they were not addressing what I really cared about, and this is how space is being populated by bodies, mm -hmm. and what exactly happens when we have bodies within a space that claim the same 
rights or perhaps the same positions with regards to a more abstract idea, which is justice. That's my first in input and I and the reason for which I'm getting a bit angry with. The second input is the idea that current spatial justice discourses are being uh, essentially they despatialize justice. So they simply talk about justice as regional democracy, or they talk about justice as, as uh, distributive justice or some sort of participatory kind of mechanism. What they do is that they simply bracket the well, what it is. I mean, not the importance of space, but the role of space and how space has to be conceptualized for a discourse of spatial justice to work. Rather than simply locality, you have to think of space as so much more than just that. But an architect can tell me what they mm -hmm. think of that. Um, and subsequently, the other angle that I come from, and I think that it's a bit of a, it's a, bit of a problem that is left out, is, is law and the relation between spatial justice and law. Because... All the attempts, without an exception, have been dealing with sort of political understandings of justice. And I think that although that's, that's, that's perfectly valid, there is a fear in dealing with the law from outside the law. And, and, and perhaps, perhaps for good reasons, because the law presents itself as a closed system and you, know, you either have to be in it or, or you just don't get it. Um, and and that is why I'm trying. What what I'm trying. Well, another thing that I'm trying to do now is is somehow inform the concept of spatial justice, um, and in its connection, that is bring in the connection between spatial justice and the law. I see. Um, well, so maybe maybe I should try to do this little assignment, which is to explain a little bit where I come from in terms of uh, looking at the law. Um, and uh, and uh, maybe uh, we can carry on this conversation uh, based on my uh, on the degree of uh, candidacy uh, of of my own discourse. Um, uh, so you you've been speaking about space, for example, and uh, very very often. So I feel that the space um, is uh, delimited by this little apparatus, this little apparatus that we call architecture, mm -hmm. and that very much. Um, uh, correspond, I believe, to the lines that the law traces on the diagram that I, uh, uh, in the abstract, that I that I think uh, has a degree of perfection that architecture, when it comes to um, incarnates those lines uh, and incarnate both in the meaning of materializing it, but also uh, framing their bodies that you were evoking uh, within within the space that it creates. Um, then there is a there is a, architecture becomes uh, imperfect because it is uh, within the within the realm of of um, of materiality and, and a non a non uh, absolutely controlled um, realm by uh, well the architect to start with who also who also thinks of architecture in its perfection on its plans but has to deal with its imperfection when it uh, when it comes. Uh, and when I say perfection, obviously, I don't. I do not mean that in a moralistic way. I mean only in a, in a almost mathematical or geometrical way. Um, so, uh, as I was saying a little bit earlier, when we were preparing this podcast, um, the the way that I the way that I that I try to illustrate that in the most um, immediately understandable uh, way, because I tend to 
otherwise starts those long sentences and not know, not knowing how they're going to end. But if if we look if we look around us uh, here where we are in London or wherever our listener might be, uh, if they happen to be in a city or pretty much any form of uh, architecture um, architecture uh, that surround them. Uh, the chances are that all the walls that surround us are pretty much a materialization, the architectural materialization of the law that um, incorporate within it the principle of private property. Um, so that's that's a very immediate immediate way of looking at this problem, and and that's maybe the, my interest in this um, in this uh, way of considering this relationship. Uh, but anyway, I'm talking too much. So would you would you would you would you, would you please <laughs> take it from there? I will. Um, I mean, there, there's even several, there's no question. But. No, no, no. But there's several points that I wanted to hmm. take up. I mean, you did first of all, you did mention that uh, you don't mean perfection in a moralistic way, but you mean it in a mathematical way. But mathematics, we know, have a very specific understanding of supra morality. So there is a there's a clockwork understanding of the world and how the world is. There's almost a fatalistic understanding of how the world mm -hmm. should develop and where it should reach. And and this is what I, I mean, with all, all respect to the discipline of architecture, this is what I call the tyranny of the project. Okay. Because architects seem to be, a little bit like some, some political theorists, uh, seem to be quite enslaved by the perfectibility of, of the project. And the project is the final outcome which... <laughs> well, in an ideal architectural world, it will not be inhabited. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, in the in 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 the way it works, is still a final project. So there's a moment, there's a kind of a threshold where the architect delivers, and that is a moment of perfection. And that's from from which point the perfection becomes. I mean, this is an arbitrary point, of course, but but is this moment after which the project becomes. Um, it takes a distance from from the 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 project itself, so that the project doubles up or triples up or proliferates mm -hmm. and becomes something different to what the architect imagined. But here, I'm wondering if you don't uh, think of uh, project from architects who have like um, who are may called uh, author architects mm -hmm. uh, who, who are more, as you say, like sometimes more interested in in, in producing space than than. Uh, Having uh, having the the bodies within it are dirt, dirtying. Yeah. The, well, the I mean, thing. this is obviously the yeah. But actually... but I would argue I would argue that in in any given uh, city, uh, most of the, most of the architectures that surrounds us have nothing to do with this authorship. Uh, and and I would probably argue that there are, that all those architectures are very much sought for receiving bodies but in a often in a <laughs> sometimes in a consciously political uh, agenda sometimes mm -hmm. not but or economical agenda um but there is there is a there is a, um, a transcendental will from the architect and and when i mean the architect obviously do not mean simply the guy working in his office but uh, the the entire the entire realms of of the entire set of actors that uh, participate to think of this architecture in its abstractness and perfection uh, and its relationship to so, to a given society. Uh, so, I, yeah, there there are th there's absolutely 
um, a discourse of of the author in 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 some of these architectural projects, and we know how many times the signature of the author remains despite the fact that the the project collapses. And mm-hmm. you know, I mean, Calatrava, for example, is a case which seems to be constantly produ- the projects seem to be constantly producing side effects that were not planned by the architect himself, etc., etc. So it's a really interesting discourse of how the project um, departs from the original will and what it becomes with the project and what becomes with people working in the project or, or simply using the project. But what I meant was something a bit more modest than that also, is the turn of the project is not the perfect project, it's just the project that is a solution to a problem. Mm-hmm. Whereas, and this is a tyranny, the tyranny of the solution mm-hmm. in the form of the project is it can be quite debilitating in the sense that even when architects do art, you know, look at uh, the um, Biennale in Venice, Venice Biennale, the architecture, which is, again, a biannual thing. Um, you s- <laughs> there is a fantastic self-limitation of, of the exhibits. They're all about the project mm-hmm. or the solution to the problem. As a, and, and, then, and then there is a frustration because there's a need to surpass that. And that is why I, as a, as a legal academic, very envious of artists. And that's why when I dabbled with art, with an exhibition that I had recently, and I was trying to do some things with it, I realized the entirely different discourse. Because in, in law, and I believe in architecture as well, you begin with the idea of the solution, the, the resolution of whatever it is, the conflict, the problem, the, the question, the, the situation, the spatial arrangement, um, etc., and in art, it's an entirely different thing. You begin with a, f- with a thesis, but without orientation. So if you have, you have a thesis, which thesis can be incre- incredibly fuzzy. It can just be a position. A thesis means a position, of course, in, in Greek. So it's, you have a, a, a seating arrangement, a thesis, but you're not orienting yourself anywhere in particular. And you're trying in some way to understand by working through the material that you have, whatever the material is, you're trying to understand where it is that your orientation takes you. So, so the tyranny of the, of the project is, is, a, is both a grander thing in the sense of the, the absolute, the signature, but at the same time is something much more modest in the sense that it's, it's a, the need to provide for a solution, for something that works and in which bodies can, can work. And I think this is a great paradox of architecture because on one hand you really need the bodies to come in and populate, but on the other hand you don't. And it's, it's, a, it's a really quite fascinating mm. thing going on there. But I want also to return a little bit to the, your, your, your understanding of introduction and, and indeed the, the, you know, the, the concept of the perfect as it comes from law. And and you posited a couple of distinctions there. You said um, there's a kind of a... Uh, you didn't mention concrete, but you mentioned abstract. So you're talking about the abstraction of what it is that the law is, is attempting to do in the city, etc., or perhaps a kind of the, the, diagram, the diagram of the abstract law, which in, in a clockwork world is perfect. Mm-hmm. And then you talk about the architecture, which is imperfect because it kind of it has somehow to fit in that particular diagram, but fails, etc. So the idea of a law as abstract and perfect is, is an idea that the law indeed wants to put across and manages clearly. Um, quite, a, quite a lot of people coming from outside the law see the law precisely in this way, as abstract, as immaterial, as, as universal, uh, and so on. And this, I think, 
is one of the greatest tricks that the law has ever managed to play on us. Because by believing, well, believing, by playing along, by endorsing this illusion that the law is pushing through, um, that the law is abstract, we, we manage to blind ourselves to rather blatant fact that the law is fully material. And the law has no different material existence to the walls that you were talking about, to the concepts of property. And I will, I will, I will introduce also public property and the commons, which are also legal concepts. So private property works in relation to public property, whatever that thing is, and also the concept of the commons. These are and, and semi-private companies, again, properties, etc. So all these things are categories of the law that precisely through their materialization through bricks and walls and and corridors of compulsion and corridors of 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 um of allowing or of encouraging somebody to do something etc it it is fully here so it is totally imperfect in the sense that you were describing but for me this is the problem that is totally perfect in the sense that's so fully material so non-universal so non-abstract that there is no way out from the law that the law is simply everywhere um okay so maybe f forgive once again my candidness but uh I, I i might think of two examples that i would like you maybe to to develop this idea as a, a against those examples because um one of the one of the predicate of maybe not all low but uh, i'm not sure about that but at least one one predicate of uh, many laws is that um one shall knows the content of the law uh, in order for the law to apply to to implement itself, and therefore we are looking at a variety of semiotics of the way the law explicit itself to be actually known and therefore implemented. So I suppose that those things uh, requires a certain degree of of materiality to acquire the the. the, the the status of, uh, of science within this semiotic, um, and I suppose the other the other example, and and so the question is where, what is this materiality that the law uh, you say uh, has indeed to 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 implement itself, and the other the other question is that if we think of a if we think of um, spaces in the city where there is a the to go back to the principle of private property spaces in the city where there is not a clear explicitation of what is private what is public uh, I think we we all had an experience in which we were clearly confused between uh, this uh, this uh, territory on which a certain law apply and uh, this other territory and so where are the lines um, we can think of uh, of uh, Lars von Trier's uh, hmm. movie Dogville hmm. right because like the uh, it is um, a small a small village in a vacuum, let's say, uh, but where there's no walls, but there's still the lines on the floor that um, represent the walls. And obviously, a line is a wall. So, but sometimes we clearly don't have the lines. I'm thinking of a, a pretty obvious example of uh, when when we might be in a, uh, informal settlements in in India, for example. You would you would arrive in somebody's kitchen without really noticing it. So. Um, how I guess the question is uh, the candid question is how would the law uh, implement itself if it was not for uh, something 
that we can call architecture, but it may be something a bit more general. Like the, it's it's uh, it's uh, corporeal corporality. <laughs> uh, please. <laughs> so the the first the both examples I think are quite excellent of the exactly precisely the. Um, the double nature of law. You talked about many laws. You said, I don't know whether there's one law or many laws. And I think that's that's quite correct in the sense that um, according to the legal system, there's only one law. And this could be, depending on what the legal system you're looking at, is you know written or unwritten, constitutional, etc. But there's kind of a, a whole rule of law, which is the way that the law, I suppose, implicates itself into society. Mm-hmm. But I would go even further. Um, Spinoza talks about the rules of living rather rules for living mm-hmm. and and the rules for living are more and yet inscribed within what we would consider the traditional law the written law the oral law the court uh, decisions statutes etc now the rules for living are really quite insidious because they appear in precisely what you said a corporeal way that is our bodies embody the law mm-hmm. so we don't in a way we are born in the law and the law the law posits itself within us not even a priori it is it is it's kind of a semantic revelation when when we understand that what we do it's almost psychoanalytical is when we understand that what we do is because of the fact that somebody else told us what to do and of course the fantastic moment of disjointment between the idea that somebody else had told me that this is what I'm supposed to do and I have no idea who it is, the person who told me that this is what I'm supposed to do, gets translated into I will do. So it is this extraordinary, I mean, you, you know, currently it's called several things, Big Brother, it's kind of the, the you know, the, the, fa- the second analytical father, it's all sorts mm. of different things that come in. But the law um, appears whether in, in the more traditional understanding of the law or in the kind of more Spinozan understanding of the law, which is much broader, you would say, appears as a thing that comes from within the body. So the law plays along this thing and really uses it when it demands to be known wherever you are. So that the knowledge of law is quite an extraordinary legal conceit in a way, isn't it? It's quite, I, I'm just, I'm just, I love this idea that the law can actually say that. You must know me before you know me. Who is it that you know before you know? God or something like that. So law is God. And you're born with this understanding of the law that changes, though, depending on the jurisdiction. Because the idea of, of being where you are and knowing the law of the place where you are refers to a, a more traditional spatial understanding of the law, which is jurisdiction. So each legal system has a certain jurisdictional uh, territory, that is a jurisdictional ability to apply itself to specific spatial contours, special boundaries. So there's a, a French jurisdiction as opposed to the British or the English perhaps jurisdiction, etc., etc. So there are different ways in which Jurisdictions have a very strong political understandings, cultural, ethnical, ethnic, ethnic uh, identity understandings, etc. So what you have with this idea that you you walk into a jurisdiction and you know it, is is the clearest indication that the law <laughs> is here, and you don't even need to know it. You know it just because you're there. And if you don't know it, it's your fault. So go and deal with it with your analyst or something like that. It's your <laughs> guilt and whatever it is. Or go to prison, which is sometimes the same thing. So it's kind of this idea that you 
you cannot avoid the law simply because wherever you are, your, your body is, and your body and the connection between the body and the space is the law. Mm-hmm. So the second example, and, and Dogville is, is, a, is a wonderful example of precisely this idea of how these lines that materialize, you say, through architecture, and, and it is true, I mean, it depends on the kind of the, the dispositive that you, you're talking about for the law. I mean, if the law is there and the dispositive is architecture, is, is, is the way it works, but it can work the other way around, of course, too, that architecture there and, and architecture's dispositive is the law. So you can have all sorts of ways of understanding these lines. I don't think that there's a distinction. I don't think that one should draw a distinction between architecture and law in that particular mm-hmm. matter, or anything else for that matter. That's why I don't believe in disciplines. That's why I yeah. don't understand the whole idea of residing in a discipline. So what I I have a more kind of quotidian example of, of Dogville's lines. And this is when I cycle in London. And my my whole mapping of the of the cycling route is filled with lines that are entirely self-imposed. Mm-hmm. There are a couple of cycling lanes that I can or cannot use. Not many. Not many, <laughs> as you probably have discovered. And then, and then, there, is, then, then there is my own nightmare of, of, of a diagram that, that keeps on punishing me or allowing me to feel secure. Mm-hmm. This side of the line or that side of the line. And it just drives me crazy because I'm cycling and I think, I can't go on the pavement right now. It's not right. There is no one around. There is a huge lorry roaring behind me. What am I going to do? Of course I'm going to go on the pavement because it makes perfect sense for my own body safety. But then it's a line that stops me. And there is no line there. But it's So these lines are constantly there. We embody, I breathe these lines. I impose these lines onto myself, and most people do. And, of course, there are some people who are more comfortable with, with crossing these lines. Mm-hmm. And I, I consider myself a bit of that as well. So this is my big paradox in regards to the law. But whatever you do, whether you cross them or you're staying this side or that side, you always work with, with these lines. I mean, when you say that you walk in in an Indian kitchen without even realizing that this is a kitchen, you have created a bit of a faux pas perhaps because you didn't know exactly the laws, the norms of this particular spatial Mm. domestic arrangement. Or maybe it is a faux pas for you, whereas for the the, the residents, it's not a faux pas to go into the kitchen. It's perfectly all right. For you, you feel, oh my God, I'm going into something, the intimate sphere. Mm -hmm. So so it's, it's wonderful how our lines keep on coming with us and how we fall for the conceit of the law you need to know the law before even you enter it. Uh, and let let it be said that sometimes when you ride your bike on the sidewalk, you can end up in a, in, in an interesting, uh, acute uh, uh, exploration of of the of uh, of the mechanisms of a legal system. And it happened to me recently that I had, I had to go to court in the U.S. Oh, well for done. for doing that. It well, was you're here. A very very interesting Kafkaian experience. But, uh, Anyway, you did pronounce the word after 25 minutes of, uh, of conversation. Uh, I heard it, so I'm going to ask you the question. Yes. Um, uh, the, the question in advance is, uh, what is the difference between the norm and the law? Uh, and and uh, you've, you've been noticing that... Uh, you've been... Uh, sorry, you've been saying that there, um, one of the means of application of the law is someone telling you do not do that whatever it might be somebody else assign uh, uh or whatever it might be but this is still a, a form of 
transcendental um, uh, imposition of the law, whereas uh, there is an there is the one that we are probably even more familiar with, which is the immanence application of the law, which is simply a sort of uh, mimicry that we might adopt, especially when we're not in a territory where we actually do know the law, um, uh, a sort of mimicry of what we see, uh, what we see around us. Uh, and this mimicry is very much the, at the base of any normative process, uh, I mean, any process of construction of the norm. So that makes me that may be, makes me ask this question: What is the difference between the norm and the law? Is there any difference? Um, you, I mean, I think a legal philosopher would be that is a philosopher of law, and legal theory would be more um, interested in this question. I'm not so interested in this question. The reason being that I don't. I think that's another kind of distinction that the law puts forward, and and we sort of we feel the need to obey, but of course I think the distinction works. Um, to conceal the fact that norms are actually or potentially law. That means that we sit in a particular way here. Uh, we we you know we're very civilized with our teas and and, and biscuits. We have a little thing in front of us, etc. Everything seems to be perfectly neither lawful nor unlawful, just just fine. But of course, anything can happen. And we never know what bodies can do in relation to the law. And I'm, I'm sorry again for this Spinoza wing. Especially clumsy body like mine. So <laughs> well, I'm, that's right. I, I might so, drop the tea very quickly. Exactly, and you break my uh, you know vintage yeah. um, uh, teapot or whatever okay, it is sorry. that thing that is kind of thing, and that would be still within the, the 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 boundaries of social normativity. Let's say. So you won't be too angry. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> well, I want you not to break it at least three or four, and then you get you know when you get very angry, then we'll, then we start sort of talking about the law. So this is not just, I mean, I think in the sense, the law is always here, whether we see it or not. Mm. And it doesn't mean that, I mean, you can call it a matter of degree, whether there are some environments where the law is absolutely thick, the presence of the law is so dense, like the courtroom, as you, you probably know, because the courtroom is one of the, these magnificent examples, where, where whatever, first of all, whatever you do, you feel accused in a way you feel that you you know you carry a huge burden on yeah. your on your shoulders hence the kafkaian feeling exactly, <laughs> exactly. so it's, it's quite wonderful because this particular space of the court is every single uh atom of the of the of the oxygen is filled with law and and they tell you about it so there's nothing hidden about it of course uh, and then there's all this huge sort of underneath of the the iceberg hidden part but, you know, you have to use these toilets, you have to go through this door, you have to sit like this, you have to say what you say in that way, da 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 da, da. I mean, in English courts, you cannot use, you cannot drink water, for example, from the uh, bottle. If you use a bottle, uh, even a small little, you know, Evian bottle, <laughs> you're still going to be castigated by the judge because this is, um, it's, it's disrespect in a sense. Which, I, you know, me and my, my rampant imagination, I just say this is just, there's only one phallus in that room and this phallus has to be the law or the judge and not the bottle from which you're trying to suck out some water. So it's kind of, there's a kind of a really interesting understanding of how, of the density of the law in, in some cases, which is very visible and in other cases where it seemed perfectly, um, I would say, anomic 
in from anomia, which is the absence of the law or absence of 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 norms. And one of those things that have been there's been some work on uh, is this white cube, the famous white cube of of contemporary galleries and art, and you know this this mausoleum of of perfect conditions. And perhaps this is a perfection in, at work. And so the white cube requires a huge amount of work before the white cube comes into materialization and during its materialization. And the work is not to produce the white cube. It is, well, it is because of that, but the, the work goes into hiding all the stuff that comes in and draws lines in, on the, in the white cube. So the white cube needs a huge amount of de- deodorization um, that is completely stopping smells from coming through. It's it's all about banning colors except for the white and the the colors of the the paintings etc. or whatever the art pieces etc. Et so the, and there's this idea that there's a democratic space. So you walk in and usually it's free if it's a private gallery. So it's it's really interesting. It's a private gallery yet it's free and you can walk in, you can go wherever you want. There's no barriers, you know, there's a little bit of barriers, but then usually they're invisible because they're electronic and all that stuff. So you go into the space which seems completely anomic and and free from law. But there the density of the law is quite extraordinary. I mean anything you do, wherever you go, whatever you touch, whatever you break, and all these things, there's always insurance come comes in, there's kind of concepts of where, you know, boundaries, etc. Cetera, et cetera. But all these have to have to be um invisibilized mm-hmm. in order for the law to work through its tricks. I see, and that that's where we can refer to Bon Bonapart of uh, Jean Luc Godard was uh the three actors uh, 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 running into the Louvre as a as a form of uh, just running, but yeah, yeah, it's perceived as a, the biggest heresy that exactly. can be made within exactly. this museum. Exactly. Um, so maybe we can move on to another question I have for you because this is something that I've been uh, relatively obsessed with, which is the question of. Um, Uh, maybe st- st- starting with a predicate that the law is um, a means of organizing a society in which supposedly, and I insist on supposedly, uh, makes this society work for the work for the better and for the biggest amount of people. Um, then there there is a question that that uh, that uh, emerged, which is the legitimacy of uh, violating the law. Um, uh, and uh, I have a small intuition about it that I've been, uh, that I've been saying before, um, um, which is that one might be legitimate to violate the law when the reason of the violation concerns the law in its essence. Uh, the, the, in, in other words, disobedience as a form of contestation of the law. Um, so uh, if we talk about Rosa Parks or uh, some examples like that, I think it, it becomes very illustrative. Uh, whereas if we see, uh, I don't know, somebody, somebody shooting at somebody else in the street, there's very, very little chance that this person was actually contesting the law according to which uh, you, should, you shall not ca- kill your uh, neighbor. Uh, so that's that's an intuition I have about about this question of legitimacy, but it it might have some uh, fallibility in it that uh, I would love for you to explore. <laughs> you talked about the essence of the law, which is a really um, interesting concept, and and I think legal philosophers like that as well. 
and um, and there is an understanding or an essence of the law, which um, I guess you you linked it to legitimacy, which is quite an interesting um, link. I will I will try and question both these things. First of all, the essence of the law um, is something that obviously is very important to the law itself. So, what is the law? The law. I mean, we can. We, we, I mean, the, one of the problems with talking about anything as as disciplinarily grand as the law or space or architecture and all that stuff is that we, you know, we essentialize it. That mm. is, we just talk about one thing. Um, we already. I've already tried to even not just essentialize, but even kind of make it cover everything by mm-hmm. saying the law is everything and everywhere, and and there is no difference between law and norms, etc. So we we're getting even more and more imperialistic here. <laughs> but I will. I will say even something. But potentially even more imperialistic in the sense that even unlawful things, unlawful acts, objects, uh, etc., are part of the legal system. Mm-hmm. So the law is not just what is legal, but it's also what is illegal, unlawful. Yeah. And this comes from um, Nicholas Luhmann, uh, an understanding of what the legal system is. Um, and I've, I've written extensively on, on this and kind of understandings of what it is how it is that the legal system operates between mm. this, what is called a code, between the lawful and the unlawful. Because a, a law is pretty much, it's, a law is, contra- contrarily on what we might think, is not uh, the piece of text or something that explain what is allowed to do. The law is what did, did uh, categorize each behavior, each behavior sorry, as either lawful or unlawful, mm-hmm. it's exactly. it's an instrument of separation. Yes, right? exactly. It's an it's instrument of distinction. Of course, by by positing the distinction, you're at the same time you're putting them together. You're constructing not quite a synthesis. It's not a dialectical synthesis, but it is, um, as it were, carving out of a space where these two things can work together and can start varying each other. That is something that is now unlawful can, in the future, be lawful. And vice versa, or something in this particular condition, this particular geographical uh, conditions that can be unlawful, but in another geographical condition can be lawful, etc. So you have this in the code between unlawful and lawful. There's a constant fluctuation, variation, moving from here, etc. But this, uh, I mean, the, the the trap of of using this is that it gives you a very stable understanding of what the law is. The law seems to be perfectly content and almost autonomous in its own super-perfect, um, non-escapable binarism, you know, duality between the, the lawful and the unlawful. What happens with the law, actually, <laughs> I would say, whereas I don't think that I have privileged access to it, but I will, I will try, is that there is no essence of the law. And this, this binary code is entirely vacuous, it's entirely empty. And what fills it is the assemblage between the body, the space, the time, that is the conditions in which a particular law emerges. And the law is neither, as I said, it's, it's embodied, but at the same time it's fully spatialized, it is fully temporalized. So a law emerges every time between you your bicycle, your pavement, and New York State uh, or, or whatever New York City government. There is a there's a constant, I would say, negotiation, but it's not quite a negotiation because there are very specific power balances to be addressed. But there's always this moment of emergence of an assemblage of which the law is just part. And there is nothing prescribed. There is no way that one can say, for example, that the pavement has legal agency. 
until you actually use the pavement in a certain way that gives it a kind of a legal role in the whole thing and becomes a material consideration for the law within that system. So when is it possible to disobey the law? I say, this is if you take the law as an assemblage, as an emergence, there is no way that you will disobey the law because there's always another law you obey in. Mm -hmm. And this particular law in that particular assemblage, in the particular kind of gathering of of agencies, etc., makes sense, has meaning. So you do that and you feel happy with it or you don't feel happy with it. And when you steal, you know, the famous Hegelian example of, of stealing when you're, you know, stealing a loaf of bread because you're hungry... That's a moment where it's justified that you do it because a particular assemblage allows you to do it, encourages you, you must do it because you have you, you weigh different factors, etc. But of course, this is not absolute. It doesn't lead to absolute subjectivity. It just leads to an understanding of a, of a very specific, concrete, empirical understanding of where the law emerges. And in a way, and this is the interesting thing about the law, the law is not so bad after all because in a way... It really tries to address these conditions. It looks closer to the condition most of the times, anyway. It looks close to the close. I mean, it looks into the conditions and tries to understand where it is that the law emerges and how can we interpret the law in such a way that will do justice. This big word to the conditions. Quite often, it doesn't. It fails to do that. It's a contingent thing whether it will manage to do that or not. But it's at least on some level is predisposed to look into the particular material conditions. So I would say that if we want to do, to do a very simple, very straightforward political discourse, when is it legitimate to disobey the law? I will have no answer because it, clearly there isn't such a case. Um, there might be cases like that, but then it will be as banal as you know taking, taking somebody else's seat on the bus or, or as potentially or seemingly grand as Tahrir Square or, uh, or, 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 you know, historically important as 1789 French Revolution and stuff like that. But all these things end up in ways that quite often are disproportionate to, to, the, to the seeming magnitude of their, of their presence. So it doesn't mean anything that we had a 1789 revolution and therefore everything changed afterwards and we have enlightenment and rationality and all that stuff. This is, this is a post-facto causality. There's a moment where you say, well, it was right to disobey the law at that particular moment. Was it? And what kind of law came in? I'm not, I'm not, you understand, I'm not a royalist. Mm-hmm. What, I'm, what I'm, I'm trying to understand is how in our pride and heroic Hollywood move of, of going against, you know, one man against the law, <laughs> you actually think that you are demolishing the law. But in fact, you always work within those parameters of the law. In Tahrir Square, the law receded and the law came in. Different law, possibly. Now we know it wasn't so different after all, etc. So you, there's always this kind of... But, and I, I'm sorry if I'm monopolizing it a no, bit, because no, 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 no. There's this, this, it, it would seem that this is a little... It brings despondency, right? There's no way of escaping the law there's nothing outside the law and everything is just business as usual mm-hmm. for the law however and i think this is the interesting moment when when you resist i don't want to resist no when you withdraw that's a word that i want when you withdraw from the law from this particular spatial corporeal temporal arrangement and you empty the square 
from the particular law that inhabits right there by taking your body away from that square and by filling that body, well, rather that square, with different bodies pulsating with a different understanding of the law, that is a moment where between two laws, in a way, between a law that is already there, corrupt and bored with itself and, and moribund, and another law that still doesn't know what it wants to do, but there is kind of hope and, and excitement and, 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 and the architecture around you is pulsating with all this love for the future, that is the moment where justice might emerge. That is this tiny little moment where justice, in the sense of finding your right place and your position, finally, in this big square... That is the moment where justice might emerge. But I think justice is a bit like um, poppies. Poppies? Poppies. You know, those red flowers that kind of, oh, you know, yeah. they come up and they're just it for a couple of days and that's it. Yeah. That's the lifespan of justice. And it might or might not happen. But when it happens, it's a nice moment. <laughs> it's more than a nice moment. It's an event. Um, but then this means that, this does not mean rather that the law disappears. The law always remains. Mm -hmm. So whatever you do, you whether you are being unlawfully dealing with the law or lawfully dealing with the law, you're always already within the law. Mm. And and uh, uh, I think we should. Uh, pro I mean, the stu studying those those puppies and uh, and uh, so the fact that we we we're thinking that their 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 existence is so short is a very anthropocentric also way of Thank looking you. at it. Exactly. And, uh, um, but uh, I'm I'm glad I'm glad to hear you uh, saying all that because I, uh, I can I can see in filigree of what you're saying uh, something uh, as joyful as, uh, as Spinoza Spinoza's ethics of uh, somehow I'm, I'm thinking that uh, uh, I mean we we don't need to put words and things and uh, and uh, essentialize as you say but I, I'm think I'm think such a such a uh, a correspondence of uh, the, the concept of law, as you express it, with uh, Spinoza's concepts of ethics. So I find it I find it uh, fascinating, um, and that is why the diagram is is useful because the geometry of the expression of ethics in Spinoza is quite an extraordinary moment of illusion. I am the system, and within that system there is the denial of freedom. Therefore, there is freedom. And that's exactly what the law is. There is the diagram. There is the idea that this is how the norms, the rules, everything else works. Within that thing, you have no freedom because everything is already prescribed. And that is where freedom is. Uh, okay, but then to, to, to take on, on that, then I suppose that there's only one element left that uh, uh, remains unquestioned here, which is the problem of the axiom uh -huh. that... Spinoza in his in his uh, uh, geometrical mode in which he uh, uh, unfolds his ethics has like any other mathematician or ge geometer, uh, ge geometers, geometer yeah or ge geometric uh, geometric person yes uh, uh, has to has to consider axioms that needs to remain unquestioned for the, the entire system to exist. So mm -hmm. what are the axioms of the law? There's only one, and this is whether law is lawful or unlawful. It has still to be a question. It cannot be an axiom, because the law... Well, I mean, it can. It can. The law presents itself as an axiom. Law is lawful. Mm. But is, this, is, this is the ultimate paradox. If you ask whether the law is lawful or unlawful, you're within the system and you're putting a bomb within the system. And that is a really useful moment. And, and of course, according to the system, it's only the system that can do it to itself, according to in, on the surface of, you know, on the plane of imminence. Mm -hmm. 
there is no outside. Everything yeah. has to come from within. So this folding of the paradox, this moment of kind of mirroring of the lawful and unlawful moment from within and and questioning it, positing the concept, the question, the lesson in philosophy, we have to, to, to ask the question. So as soon as you ask the question, that's the moment where the system is shaken up. Mm-hmm. But it's not so simple because you have to ask the question from a very specific space mm-hmm. and at a very particular time. Mm-hmm. And it's not just about a hero who's asking this question. It's not even about a community that asks this question. No, it's about the law itself that asks itself in front of the mirror whether it is, am I lawful mm-hmm. or am I lawful? And I'm, uh, I have this little vertigo happening right now, which, uh, which is to say that maybe giving an axiom to the law is also a way to naturalize it, which obviously we don't want to do that. But maybe questioning the virtual axiom of the law might be the way to do to put the little bond that you're talking about. So we, we need to question an axiom that does not actually exist, but that's actually operative within the law. That's absolutely right, because you, the law cannot visibilize this axiom. It would be too dangerous for the law to expose this axiom, in the same way that it would be too dangerous to expose its full materiality. The law has to remain abstract and universal, etc. But by looking at the particular. I see. That might, been, that might have been something Rousseau did not quite see then, but uh, with his social contract, maybe the axiom of the social contract did not exist, but yet mm. questioning it would have been... Exactly, easy. exactly. Well, Andreas, thank you so much. I think it was a fascinating conversation and I, I hope the, the, the listeners would have enjoyed as well. Thank you very much. My pleasure, Leopold. Thank you.